Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm a journalist, author, interviewer, broadcaster, and podcaster, and I'm fed up saying that at the start of each, each podcast, but I do so simply to avoid any confusion, lest anybody think I am Joe Jackson, the singer, and expect me to sing Look Sharp. I also have been a lover of pop music all my life, and as a child, I remember seeing the Beatles for the first time on a BBC TV show called Crackerjack. Put it the way, I was a child in the 60s rather than a child of the 60s. But either way, every Beatles single album and EP during that decade inevitably formed the soundtrack of my life. In fact, from the moment I heard the song You Can't Do That and someone told me it was John Lennon singing lead, he became my favourite Beatle, which he has remained. And so 30 years ago in 1993, when I was doing weekly music interviews for the Irish Times, it was a delight for me on every level to fly from Dublin to London to interview George Martin. I've already posted two short podcasts from the interview today, November the 5th, and to tell you the truth, I haven't heard in full since it was recorded the entire interview I did. Given the limitations of space in my Irish Times column, which usually ran for roughly 1,200 words, I used only tiny fragments from our chat. So 30 years later, I hope that what follows, particularly George Martin's version of the backstory of the battle over the letter BLP, is as fascinating to you as it is to me. It's also interesting to hear George Martin mock John Lennon's political naivete and say he hated Lennon's political songs. But we started by talking about the subject of drugs such as LSD, which I don't mention by name, and that heavily influenced the fragmented consciousness replicated in songs such as Tomorrow Never Knows. It doesn't. Well, I was asking you about the, um, the way you, would, you and John would work uh, on Strawberry Fields and stuff like that. It was not unlike what Yoko was doing in conceptual art. Is it then true that you wanted Revolution Number no. Nine dropped from the White Album because you didn't like oh, what no, they I were doing? I love Revolution Number Nine. I thought okay. it was terrific. I mean, John and I worked very closely on that. All right. It really was a sound picture that we built together. Right. Um, what I wasn't terribly keen on the original Revolution because okay. it was really very distorted guitars and so on. All right. Right. And I, I didn't really. I've never gone for political messages. In Have you not? Right. I hate it. Right. Right, you hated that then. Uh, well, I, I don't so, like political messages right, and songs. I think right, it's not the right, right vehicle for it. What about the, when people don't know much of what they're talking about anyway? Did you feel that John didn't know enough about what he was commenting on politically? I didn't think John knew half of what he was talking about. I think that he was very naive. But he was elevated into that position by what the sixties needed at that point. Yeah. yeah, I mean, all the give peace a chance bit. Um, he genuinely believed what he was doing, but it really was 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 being so simplistic. It really didn't mean all that much. Slogan sloganizing. I mean, John was so simplistic that on the one hand he'd say, give peace a chance, on the other hand he'd say, that we're bigger than the Beatles. Bigger than Jesus. So he, both, both statements were a bit naive. He, right. His heart was in the right place, he meant well, but he didn't take into account all the bigger issues. Right. So he thought he could solve problems by sitting in a bag in a hotel tomorrow. Oh, no. Didn't really work out. Wow, yeah, it was very sweet. The, uh, the, the, you know the way songs like uh, She Said, She Said and Tomorrow Never Knows are seen or described alongside the birds eight miles high as ushering in the psychedelic age? Did you, did you have to experiment with drugs with them to recreate those sound pictures? Yeah, I mean, Tomorrow Never Knows, I went along with really well and truly. See, I, in terms, of, of, in terms I, of experimentation with drugs? Well, yes, because, I mean, right. it was such a weird song when John first sang it to me. I didn't know what the hell these words are all about, you know. Uh, 
and turn off your mind and float downstream. Yeah. They're very evocative and they're very, yeah. very, very picturesque. And they could have come from, well, they did come from Timothy Leary's Book of the Dead, right. didn't they? Right. But they could equally have come from, uh, in a different style, they could have come from um, Dylan Thomas, they could sure. have come from um, Lewis Carroll, almost, right. some, some right. of the phrasings that he has. Right. Um, and the music itself was, the, the way he actually formed his l melodic lines was interesting, particularly in, in Tomorrow Never Knows, over really no harmonies at all. Right. Because there's no, no harmonic structure. Okay. Well, I, I think the question was though, did you join them in the experimentation of drugs? Yeah, I was going to make sure... Oh, I, didn't mean, I didn't get that. No. no, that was part of what I was going to ask that again, because oh, I, I thought you had missed that. Yeah. yeah, no, but I see what you mean. You were tuning in musically with where he was coming from. Yeah. But I, you didn't have... You I didn't likened have, it. I likened it to... Dali, Salvador Dali. Dali yeah. rather than yeah. drugs. Did you? So you didn't have to take drugs to see what Certainly he was saying? Wrong, no. no, but this, I mean, there are a lot of producers so that would feel, I don't understand where the artist is coming from. I know, it's crazy. Along. If I'd taken drugs, we would never have made those records. Right, right. I don't think. Well, you had to apply some order to it. I mean, there's the strong argument that when Let It, Let it Be turned into a shambles, they got rid of you then, didn't they? And did it, did it on their own or they, whatever? They didn't get rid of oh, me. Oh, did they not? Sorry. Uh, what happened was, you could say they, they got rid of Paul. Um, the story of Let It Be was that um, John was going through a very difficult time and uh, he, he was having rows with everybody. Right. With He and Yoko had going through their intense, intense relationship where they were excluding everybody else. Okay. And they were against the whole world, including the rest of the Beatles, George All and right. Ringo, they were having fights. And he actually said to me, in doing this album, I don't want any of your production shit. I want this to be a real, honest album. I said, what do you mean by that then, John? <laughs> he said, I don't want any overdubbing of voice. It's going to be live. I don't want any of your editing. I don't want any special effects. He said, we're going to do this as an honest album, like a real performance. I said, fine, if you can do that, let's do that. Right, okay. And we tried to do that. And we never really did it well because on every take there was something that was a little bit wrong that I said, All right. you know, the bass a bit out of tune right. on the third right. bar, our voice right. could be better. Right. Uh, we could, it would, wouldn't take two ticks to fix, John. No, we'll do it again, we'll do it again. So we went on to take 53, you know, All right. ridiculous. Right. And in the end, the album became, in order to make an album at all, I was working with um, a new engineer because they got rid of Emmerich, uh, Glenn Johns, very good engineer. Oh, Glenn Johns, right. Yeah, he was a producer and engineer. And we decided to put it together like a, a factual documentary record. And I said, the only way we can make anything of this is to let it out with all warts and all, right. with count-ins right. and, right. and straggly endings that, don't, that disappear and sure. nothing happens to them, and say, this is the Beatles at work, and it's a live album. Right, right. And that was how I produced the album. The album was finished. Okay. And nothing happened to it. And I thought, what was happening? You know, what, there was this un uneasy silence right. where they were still fighting amongst themselves sure. in terms of money and so on. I didn't hear for a while, long while. And then, then suddenly Paul rings me up and says, we really want you to make a, a real album with us. Right. And I said, uh, only if I'm allowed to do it the way I did. I, I don't, don't want to work again like I did before. Okay. If we can do this, we'll do it properly. And he said, no, we really all do want to do that. I said, do you really mean it? If so, I'll come back in the studio. We did, and we made Abbey Road. Right. And everybody worked very harmoniously, it was fine. After Abbey Road was made, after Abbey Road was made, Paul rings me up one day and says, do you know what John's done? I said, no, no. He said, he's taken all those tapes we did, and he's taken them to America, 
and Alan Klein's running in now. Sure. And they're working with Phil, Phil Spector. And Paul hadn't heard about it until, right. he, and right. he until he rang me up. And he was horrified, and so was I. And John did then all the things that he said he wasn't going to do, over our voice, put on heavenly choirs, sure. put on strings and all sorts of garbage. John did that or Phil Spector did it? I thought Spector usually gets the credit for putting all those heavenly Wagner-esque well, choirs Phil, on Phil the Spector long did, but direction. John went along with it, obviously. Right, right. What did you think of that production? I thought it was... A, of... Well, when they asked me to have my name removed from the album that I'd made, because he took oh, okay. my original tracks and worked on them, right, right. I said, well, there's only one way for me to give a credit, get a credit on this. He used to say it was produced by George Martin and overproduced by Phil <laughs> I don't remember seeing that on the and album. They, did, they didn't put it on. <laughs> Yeah, but but also when you say you went back to uh, the Beatles came back to you and said, which would suggest they needed you to a degree to impose some kind of order on what they were doing. Uh, wasn't there also a division then in that John wanted the produ the non-produced rock and roll side to be six yes, split I mean, songs? Well, John always felt that. John was always a but was a that jacket rock? Yeah, rock wasn't wasn't he being true to what he perceived as Sam Phillips's get the feel right and to hell with technique? That was what he wanted originally, but he right. took it to extreme. Well, what did you? What would you think of those? Did you ever listen to Presley's the the sun cuts that were done by Sam yes. Phillips and that? What did you think? What do you think of those songs, Elvis Presley and those that Lennon tried to replicate for the rest of his I life? I think they were great. I think super, right. but they were of their time. Okay. And, okay. They, and uh, we were doing different things by the right, time. Right. We were creating things. We were using the studio um, in a different way. Right. And, and John liked to go back to the back. Questions. Yeah, just that I saw you say on the, uh, you know, the MGA, MGM uh, Complete Beatles video about the Beatles being very much of their time. Uh, of their time means that they not just changed their music, but there was the look of the times, films, pop art, culture. I mean, everything is kind of signified by where the Beatles and you and they were at at particular points in the 60s. You agree mm. with that? Like the whole no, nature of the I, decade? I think that, I think that uh, they were so much of their time, of the 60s, that... If they had occurred at another time, they may not have been as successful. Right. In right. other words, if they were to, if they were to have appeared for the first time right now, okay, it's possible they wouldn't be have the same impact. I think the Beatles did more, in a way, um, more cerebral work than people right. give them credit for. Okay. And I think that a lot of the the work there it will stand the test of time. I think if you take the end of Abbey Road, for example, the, the whole when we did our long section, right. which was on on site completely. And if you take Golden Summers right through to in the end, I think the whole of that, I think, is a lovely structure. Right. I think it's got right. something which does actually give... The words aren't terribly... Um, they're not terribly sophisticated, but they do have great meaning. That's the kind of work that could be easily compared with Shirley Mahler's song cycles. I mean, that's, that is a song cycle. Mm. Don't you think that stands alongside... Uh, Absolutely. Or Mozart, or whatever kind of yeah, popular exactly, classical music yeah. there is, you know. But that's that's why the last question then is, uh, in relation to the reluctance of of academics, uh, like there is this debate in Ireland where this, a lot of academics are saying we don't want you to, or the Beatles, or any of that analysed in universities. It's only pop culture, and there still is that reluctance to recognise the the application of the word art to what you did with the Beatles, to what we're talking about, have been talking about today. I'm never ashamed of course. I, I think we did do art, and I, right. I'm quite proud of that. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't make a platform issue of it because there's so right. many people who, who are prepared to say, "Oh, they're being pompous again," you know. So you don't shout about it. Privately, I think we did. Right. Uh, right. And uh, I think that, uh, I think that it will be there in 50 years' time. Right. I really do right. believe that. Hi, Joe Jackson here again. 
I thank you for listening to this edition of the Joe Jackson Interviews podcast. And if you want to read my entire George Martin interview, I shall be uploading it soon on my website, joejacksoninterviewer.com.